just a reminder to our listeners, we're here talking with Tyler Ream, the Helena Schools superintendent. He's been gracious to give us some of his time. Tyler, I, I really like the direction that we've started to head in this conversation. If you wouldn't mind just expanding a little more about some things you've learned in March, the ups and downs since school first shut down earlier this year, and also just maybe how the overwhelming amount of data and even the politicalization of anything having to do with COVID has maybe made things a, a bit more difficult when it comes to making a sound decision on whether to reopen schools or not. What's it been like since March and what kind of lessons have you learned? What have we learned since March? Um, we've learned that, you know, remember the, the research around masks was like, no, don't wear a mask. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we need all of the respirator masks to go rightfully so to, to frontline healthcare workers. But, you know, masks will do this or that. Well, there's, you know, there's research now that actually says that if you're wearing a mask and I'm wearing a mask, we're actually making each other safer. We're, we're creating a safer environment for one another. Um, you know, there have been not breakthrough treatments, but there have been treatments. There have been developments in understanding of what ICU capacity needs to look like in order to provide treatment to people who need it. If you overrun your ICU, um, you know, systems, um, you will inevitably create a, a, a place where people who can get better won't be able to get better because they're not able to access the, the treatment that they need. And so these are all emerging pieces that we've learned. I think we've also learned, you know, I remember shutting down for the first two weeks and thinking, all right, are we going to be open in two weeks? Is it going to be a month? And then coming to the realization that this isn't going to end. This is this pandemic wasn't going to go away during the summertime. Remember, that was a theory as well. Like sunlight was going to just obliterate the virus and, and it was just going to, you know, shift to the southern hemisphere for the summer months. Unfortunately, that didn't occur. In fact, the reverse actually happened over the summer months for us. And so I think as a society, as a world, we've learned not just as a country, but from other countries about how, if this is, and I, I can't stand the term, but I'm going to use it anyways, like the new normal, like what is a new normal begin to look like so that society can function, maybe not in an optimal way, but can function um, in some regard, because we know we can't just stay in our homes. Uh, continuously between now and the time that a, a vaccine has been developed and distributed across the country. So I think it's, it, it's, you know, again, I'm not an expert in pandemics, but I think it's, it's part of this iterative learning process that we're all going through that takes us to a place where in late July, early August, we're thinking through, okay, the reality is, is this virus is going to be active in our community in some regard. What is a level of activity that gives us some relative certainty that we can go in and, and reduce risks as much as possible in school with, without, you know, being, con you know, overly concerned that there's, you know, mass community spread and, and other things that, that will definitely impact our classroom. So I think that's kind of the iteration from where we were back in March to where we are in August. If you ask me that question, um, I, in, you know, six months, I hope to have a much better answer again, because that will, I hope, mean that, that I've learned something. Sure. I think you bring up good points. You know, the data has been changing a lot. There's so much pressure, no matter which direction you go, specifically in your case, to open or to not open, but in any industry. I think the one thing I, I might offer a little bit of pushback on is that even aside from that, the numbers themselves just don't look good. 
for lack of a better analogy, it's, you know, we, we know the animal we're dealing with. Um, we know the dog gets out of the yard, right? But the dog is getting out of the yard more than ever. I think the message that's echoed by both you and county health professionals is that, well, what if we take precautions to stop letting the dog get out of the yard? Or in this case, the spread of the virus. If we can take some precautions, will this virus spread as much? It seems like people are taking precautions and the spread is continuing, um, but let's continue to make an effort and and see where we're at. (laughs) You know, let's put up a fence and, and see if that can keep the dog in the yard. Let's wear masks and have a rolling reopening and and phase approached and see if that helps. Let's try, if we can, to kind of close out and and put a bow on on some of the numbers and things like that. I, I, I think I would be silly if I dug into that subject much deeper with you. I'm not an epidemiologist. You're not an epidemiologist. So maybe a, a good way to, to, to close it out is, you know, based off what you're hearing from the county and, and even seeing, do we have a control on the numbers with our general population enough to safely open the schools and more importantly if we can't it definitely sounds like you're flexible in changing phases and changing the plan of this if we can't or god forbid something were to happen with an outbreak in the school what's the plan to kind of roll back and and close things down at the school level yeah so i think th- i think there's kind of two really good questions tucked in there um, and I'll, I'll try to address both of them. So, you know, to kind of the first question, like, are, are we safe? Do our, is our, do our current numbers show that we're at that level where, where we can say with good confidence, you know, hey, we believe our model matches the precautionary environment we needed to effectively reduce those risks, uh, for again, our students and our employees and then ultimately the families that they go home to, uh, in the evening. And, and I would say we're in a, in a, in a cautious area right now. Um, if, if, if we're, if this is a stoplight, I think we're in like a solid yellow turning red, um, in, in that area. And it's not just me, you know, as a, you know, as a trained educator who's making, just giving you my opinion, right? I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think I have the, the background training and education to give you that answer, except for I talk to really smart people and, and they, and they, the infectious disease specialists will define those terms for me, which is helpful in helping me think through with them what decisions we need to make. There have been communities, um, and states, Montana, not one of them, but there have been some states that we've taken some cues from that where their education department and their, um, you know, their state health department came together and said, all right, let's figure this out and let's give schools scenarios for what we believe is a threshold for safety. Uh, Oregon as a state developed a document that, uh, their school districts are able to use that basically says, you know, a school district or I'm sorry, a community has to be at a rate of 10 per 100,000 residents um, for three consecutive weeks before they can consider opening to any form of in-person instruction. And then if they hit, that's the green light. The yellow light is if they hit 20 um, cases 
um, to 100, and that's that's within a given week, right? 20 cases in a seven-day period per 100,000 uh, residents. That's kind of a yellow light. That says to your school district, you better start making plans should you have to shift back to an online environment. And then their red light is 30 cases per 100,000 um, residents within a seven-day period. Um, now, we don't have 100,000 residents in Lewis and Clark County. We have 69,000, but, you know, kind of using the whole, you know, sixth-grade balanced equation piece, um, we can kind of say, well, right now, I mean, based on last week, if we had 100,000 residents, we'd be somewhere just over 46 cases um, per 100,000 residents. So in the state of Oregon, we would not be allowed to even have a discussion about opening. That gives me a real moment of pause as a superintendent to say, wait a minute, um, you know, just looking around at other Montana districts is certainly helpful but let's not lose the context of what other states and other districts are doing across the United States because um, there's some pretty good science out there and some pretty good um, data thresholds that have been provided to school districts that I think there's some, some real wisdom uh, behind those pieces. Hmm. That's, uh, I mean, that's interesting. On, on that note, what if the schools have to close? What precautions are in place for that? We have a protocol already developed with Lewis and Clark Public Health that when we have an active case that's been identified, first of all, there's there's a lot of HIPAA-related guidelines, laws, et cetera, that we have to be careful uh, with. But they are, are working with us to be able to say, okay, you have a positive case. We know we need to shut down the school for a period of 24 to 48 hours to give the health professionals the ability ability and the time that they need to assess the situation and determine whether or not there are uh, potential contacts um, and or potentially other positive cases. And so they really work with us to, they assess the situation from a health standpoint. We keep parents and employees informed about what their assessment is. And then we make a decision as to whether or not this is a longer term closure or whether or not we can potentially return to school based on, again, what health professionals are telling us about the situation. Tyler, I mentioned before that I, I like the direction the interview was taking. And I, I think we're at a good point where we can sort of tackle these more existential issues when it comes to opening the schools. If you wouldn't mind opening up and just telling me, you know, has that made things a, a lot harder? Has that made it harder to do your job? You're someone who definitely has a background in knowing a bit of the science when it comes to learning and things like this. You know, maybe expand on that if, if we can touch on what you think is important to know about learning when we reopen schools and and if it's been hard not to sort of lose your way with that and all the talking points and data and even within the politics of reopening the school. Oh yeah, I mean I and I appreciate you asking the questions cuz you know frankly I, they don't get asked very often because they're they're more complex in-depth questions and so I I actually think that by you asking the questions, it allows me to go kind of a, to a deeper level. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity. I mean, what is it like to, to look at the news in the midst of all of this? It's, a, it's, it's probably the same as everybody else. It's a nightmare, right? I mean, I, I don't, I don't like looking at the news. I have to. I mean, I need to, I need to be, uh, and our whole team is again working with, 
health officials to stay as current as possible. Um, but it, it's pretty easy to, you know, to drop into a dark place, um, you know, as, as we're watching the news and thinking about these ongoing efforts to continuously um, try to meet the needs of our students, again, uh, not just educationally, but socially, emotionally um, as well. And so as we think through, um, you know, all of these pieces that we're hearing back, there, there is, candidly, there is, there's fear, right? I mean, you know, when I think about um, where education is nationally and locally, very candidly, we know, I mean, there isn't a single person that I've met that has said, you know, I'm really enjoying this pandemic. This is a blast, right? I mean, we're all struggling with this and nobody wants anybody to get sick. We're all scared for our friends, for our loved ones, for our children. Nobody wants anybody to get sick, even if their symptoms are mild. We don't know what the long-term ramifications of this virus are. And so there's so many unknowns that that creates, I think, rightfully so, um, fear. Um, on the other side is, is, you know, is the educator in me, which looks at, you know, 8,000 students that are full of potential and we have a limited time with them in a K-12 system to develop that potential to the fullest extent. And I, I think back to, you know, the decisions that we had to make in March and the decisions that we're making now, and that is actively limiting the most effective mode of teaching and learning for us, which is face-to-face, in-person instruction. The, the research on, you know, in relation to online learning isn't new. It's been something that's been emerging quite honestly, for about two decades now. Um, and there's some groups that do it better than others, but the research is still pretty clear. It works really well for a small subset of kids. It works okay for a, another subset of kids, not so well for a third subset, and then there's this fourth subset that it's just awful for. Um, and and so we already know as a nation what the research looks like in in terms of online learning. So as an educator, I'm between that that rock and that hard place of I don't want anybody to get sick. I don't want any families or individuals to be impacted in any regard by this virus. I also want our kids to achieve and have every rightful option that they have in their lives to become the person that they can be with a quality education. And those two things, unfortunately, are fairly incongruent right now, and that is a massive um, source of frustration for me, not just as an educator or a superintendent, but also as a parent. And so, you know, there's a deeper question, and I'll give you a pause here in case this doesn't work for you, but there's a deeper question of, okay, if this, then what? What comes next in terms of how education has to begin to shift or how we have to shift as a society as we think about our youngest children and what this pandemic is actively doing to their development, especially in terms of the academics. And I'm happy to, to speak to that if that's something you're interested in. I definitely would. Yeah, I, I actually think, you know, in the in the midst of all of this, that it's probably some of the more interesting things we can talk about and, and even maybe a silver lining on all this. So if, if you wouldn't mind just sharing more with me about kind of the science of learning and in-person learning in particular. 
Yeah, so I, I appreciate the question because it's a big question and it's a really important question. So thank you. Um, and I, I'm going to take a, a quick left turn um, on you here, but I promise I'll, I'll connect the dots when it's all said and done. So um, I mentioned earlier the magic that the teachers do in the classroom. Um, a couple of years ago, I was um, kind of given the, the task of creating for a school system um, a system that would allow um, meaningful learning to occur both during the school day and beyond the school day. And in particular, what we were really trying to ramp up, um, especially in the early days, is like, is there a way to, is there some algorithm to learning that you could essentially put a student in some ways on a computer um, and, and, and they could learn at high levels when they weren't in school? And so we really explored this, and I got to know a lot of kind of national leading experts who were working on this um, and came to this moment of realization after working with many of them across several months that, you know, we were looking to personalize education. And by applying a computer to a child, no matter whether or not the algorithm was there, it, it didn't work time and time again. And as I was working with those experts, I'm like, well, why is this personalization not working? It dawned on me because it wasn't personalized. Like it was the depersonalization of education as opposed to the personalization of education. So kind of what do I mean in that regard? Well, the magic that occurs in a classroom every single day has to do with the relationship that the educator has with the child and really knowing who that child is. And so if I take a child, and, and, and I've seen educators do this time and time again, where they understand that Johnny is a visual learner and that Susie is very, very social, um, and that, you know, um, Mark does really, really well in groups, but John, not so much. And John is much better in a one-on-one -on -one type of environment. And Bill loves World War One history, right? And so, like, they know all of these inputs that you could really never gain from some sort of standardized assessment, and they learn those things across time. And then the magic that occurs is teachers take the content that they're supposed to teach, that each child's supposed to master, and they, across their careers, learn how to apply that in accordance with these you know, kind of puzzles that are each individual's mind. And then they're applying the, you know, teaching and learning strategies in accordance with the, not only the children's academic needs, but their social and emotional and interest needs. That's a difference maker. And I've seen kids, you know, the light bulb literally turn on all of a sudden when a math problem is equated to World War One history. And all of a sudden, bam, that student is on it, and they figured it out, and they have the contextual understanding to master the concept. That's what's absent in so much of what is the online uh, environment. And if you don't have that deep relationship between student and teacher, and that teacher doesn't know who, really who that child is, it makes it very difficult to unlock what I would consider to be that magic that really brings, um, you know, a student's full capabilities out in, in kind of the application to learning. Mm. 
Right. And I, I think that's something that's it's very easy to lose sight of in the, in the climate of, of all this. If you wouldn't mind just, you know, sharing how hard of a challenge has this been to deal with, you know, over the course of your career and, and what's it felt like just being sort of swept up in this whirlwind or tornado of what's right to do. And I definitely don't envy what I'm sure is some very interesting emails that you've received and, and things like this. Do you just feel that you're in a no-win situation? If, if you don't open schools, you're going to face criticism. And if you do open schools, you're going to face criticism. What, what's that been like to deal with over the course of this? Have you felt like you're at a, a big crossroads or have you felt like you're in a no-win situation throughout this? Oh, I mean, I think every day to, to give you a really honest answer, and it's not, you know, I don't worry so much about the criticism because I think that goes hand in hand, again, with any public leadership position. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people who want to tell me, quite frankly, how to do my job better on a daily basis. And I appreciate that, but I, there's not many of them that have ever done my job. Of course. Um, yes. And, and so, um, I, I, it's not so much the criticism that keeps me up at night. It's the gravity and the weight of the decision. And, and, and there are, and there is a no win on both sides of those, of those decisions. If we open school in any regard, does it increase the, the likelihood that somebody could contract COVID-19? Yes. We can't escape that. That's, that's, you know, the safest thing to do is close our doors and go back to where we were in April and May when we had, what was it, no positive cases in Lewis and Clark County for like six or seven weeks, right? Um, we know that that model works. We can shut down the virus if we utilize that model. But on the other side is the gravity of that decision on the long-term social, emotional, and academic um, impacts on, on our children. And they're in these very formative years. And again, I think there are things that we can do to make up this. I mean, there is there is a construct associated with K-12 education that says that when you're X years old, you're in, in whatever grade. Um, and, and there's a lot of research that says, well, it doesn't have to be that way, um, that, that the children actually learn at different rates just like they grow at different rates. And this idea that somehow this miraculously occurs in these 180-day spurts in an identical manner across all children is simply not true, right? So I think there are some things that we can do in education that potentially can improve education as a result of this. But a lot of that is post-pandemic uh, post um, because the reality is, is is we're in that no-win situation of making decisions that regardless of the decision that we make or I make, there are long-term, potential long-term ramifications that are not good. And so it is the definition, if you will, of a no-win situation. Um, and, and it is frustrating that despite our best efforts as a nation, um, you know, six months later, we haven't developed the kind of ultimate COVID-19 educational space that allows our students the ability to continue to learn at high levels, but also reduce virus transmission. Um, it's not to say that that, you know, that isn't out there for us to discover at some point, but it's also not immediately apparent. If it was, then, you know, the millions of people that have been working on this likely would have discovered that. Um, 
and 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 we're working with the models as best we can right now. And I think we've got really good models by by you know as I look across other districts, other states, um, but they're fraught with risk on both sides. And I think that's the that's the piece that keeps me up at night more than anything else, more than the criticism, because the criticism is going to be there, and, and I understand that. Tyler Reem, I, uh, I really want to thank you for coming on the show, but probably most importantly for actually blocking out an hour in your schedule, which can't be easy right now, and also for running us through what the, the plan is to reopen schools, what the plan might be if you have to shut them down again. And I really appreciate, and I think our listeners really appreciate, uh, you know, you being an open book and, and really sharing what this experience has been like to try to tackle what, man, it must feel like a unsurmountable foe sometimes. And so I really do appreciate you coming on the show. And hopefully we will be able to talk in the future when uh, we have some good news to talk about and, and times aren't so tough. So Tyler, I, I thank you. Thanks so much. We now move on to the rundown, a race of recent headlines. On August 5th, Jesse Cheney reports that the Helena Farmer's Market is canceled for the remainder of the 2020 season. After being ordered to temporarily cease operations due to COVID-19 concerns, the Helena Farmer's Market announced that it has canceled the remainder of its 2020 season. The City of Helena revoked the permit for the weekly outdoor market on Fuller Avenue in July at the request of Lewis and Clark Public Health. County Public Health says that event organizers failed to meet the requirements of a July 8th health order seeking to limit the spread of COVID-19. The order prohibits events with more than 250 attendees and requires the organizers of the events with 50 to 249 people submit a plan examining how they intend to adhere to certain health guidelines. The market was held without a permit on July 18th, according to a report from the Helena Police Department. On July 21st, Lewis and Clark County Attorney Leo Gallagher filed a civil action asking the court to force the market and the president of its board to comply with the health order and pay an unspecified amount and expenses associated with obtaining that compliance. The next day, a judge issued a temporary restraining order prohibiting the defendants from continuing to hold any events with more than 50 people without approval and requiring them to comply with any orders from the county health officer. Wayne O'Brien, the president of the organization's board of directors, says, quote, we're pulling the plug. On August 4th, the Associated Press reports that fish poisoning is planned for a southwest Montana creek and lakes. Wildlife officials plan to poison the fish in a southwestern Montana creek and Two lakes then restock the bodies of water with a native species of trout. Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks plans to start on August 10th in North Fork, Spanish Creek, and move on to Chiquita and Big Brother Lakes, the areas just south of Bozeman. Officials want to remove non-native rainbow trout, brook trout, and Yellowstone cutthroat trout. They plan on restoring populations with a native species that has suffered from habitat destruction. And in our last headline, a Helena man is acquitted on rape and kidnapping charges. On July 30th, Tyler Manning reports that Taylor Charles Pierce of Helena was acquitted of felony charges of sexual intercourse without consent and kidnapping. A jury deliberated for approximately four hours before returning a verdict of not guilty on both counts. The charges stem from an incident that was alleged to have taken place on July 14th back in 2019. Both the prosecution and defense relied heavily on witness testimony during the trial as little physical evidence existed to support or refute that the kidnapping or rape took place. There was no dispute regarding whether or not sex itself took place. Rather, the accusations were based on whether or not consent was given. 
and that was Above the Fold for August 14th. We hope that we are able to fulfill our goal of giving listeners a deeper look into our featured subject. This week, it was the reopening of Helena Schools. Again, we'd like to thank Tyler Ream for taking time out and appearing on our show. To support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, or review wherever you subscribe, rate, and review your podcasts. Until our next episode, let's take care of each other, keep an open mind, and we'll see you next time.